Well, I have a, I, I want to, we have a little different service rather than have the normal testimony tonight. Um, I have a person I want to ask some questions, do a little interview with, and then uh, we have a different kind of testimony tonight. So Michelle, obviously you've been singing with us since the start of the service, and it's been such a, we're so blessed by your voice, but we're going to miss you for a couple months. What are you doing? You want to go ahead and grab that mic? Yeah. Where are you off to? Well, I will be studying abroad in Korea for four months, and I'm leaving Tuesday night. So So she's studying abroad in Korea for four months, and we are going to miss her, and we want to make sure to pray for her. And how did this opportunity come up? What what made your decision to go study in Korea? Well, um, I've always wanted to travel to another country, and I've always been, like, really interested in other cultures and other languages. And um, I wanted to study abroad um, since I started college, but um, it wasn't when I looked. I started looking for programs my freshman year, and it just was looking like it was not a an option. It was just really expensive, and then so I kind of gave up on that dream. And then um, just this summer, I was really praying about wanting to travel, and it just was something that was really on my heart. And so then school started. And then I, my friend has two friends who are twins who I was talking to, and they were telling me about how they studied abroad in Korea and um, how they did it through Cal State Fullerton, which is where I go, um, with their exchange program. And it was, the tuition is the same price, so I was like, whoa, okay, like, this is something that I could possibly do. And I've always been, well, I've been really interested in Korean culture, um, I started watching like Korean TV shows, and I'm just really interested in the Eastern culture and something so different. So um, I was like, wow, okay, this is something that I could possibly do. I'm not sure. This is a really big step, leaving home. Um, and so I just I really prayed about it, and it was my mom's idea. She said, um, let's just bring this before God, and if God wants it to happen, um, or God, please just open the doors and make this clear to us that it's a that you want this to happen. And she said, if it's not, if you don't want it to happen, please, God, just sh- close the doors, slam them, so we know for sure that it's not a good idea. So God really just opened all the doors for me, um, and yeah, He nothing. There are no barriers, and um, I got a scholarship. And really just, and um, he brought along people, I even met a girl from, who was an exchange student here um, from Korea, and she said she could show me around in Korea, so it was just great, God was just bringing in all these different contacts from Korea, and um, he also really was just showing me that I could be confident and trust in him to do something because I've always struggled. I've struggled with anxiety in my life a lot. Um, and I've never done anything so big like this before. Like in the past, I would always, um, I don't think I ever would have had enough confidence or um, I would have always felt like this was just too big for me. Like I wouldn't be competent enough to do it. And um, I think God's just really shown me that, hey, this is something you can do. Um, I've given you this desire. I'm gonna, I'm gonna allow this to happen, and um, you can trust me in this. 
So this has been uh, a challenge for you because, I mean, the anxiety is, is, it's actually been a big handicap for you in the past, right, uh, to, to step outside. Now you're actually going to a foreign country, people you don't know, but you're absolutely trusting in God the whole way. And so God's put, now you speak Spanish already, yes. right? And you've been learning Korean. Yeah. And you'll, you, how, how much Korean are you, are you, how much Korean do you have? Well, I've learned how to read it so I can read the characters, but I just don't know what it's saying. Um, and then I've studied a little bit of, like, I know a few words and a few phrases, like, hello and goodbye and how are you, but I really need to learn more. So the girl that has these anxiety issues, she prays and said, God, if you'll open the doors, I'll go, but you don't even speak the language. And... But you're trusting God the whole way, right? Yeah, and it was pretty amazing because when the opportunity came up and I heard about this from the twins, I, like, really I just felt like I had no fear. Like, it was very interesting. Like, nothing was bothering me. And, like, people keep telling me, like, aren't you afraid to go on your own? Like, you don't know anyone. And I'm like, no. Like, so I think that's really a God thing, because before, I was very crippled by anxiety and very afraid to do things, um, and now it's just, like, the fear is gone, and now that it's getting closer, I mean, I am a little bit nervous about some things, but I'm still trusting God, and I know that it's going to be fine, it's all going to work out, so I think God really has changed me a lot. And you leave Tuesday night? Yes. At what time? Uh, 11.50. 11.50 p.m. Tuesday night, flight to Korea. So we can remember to pray for her on Tuesday. But we're going to pray for you right now. And uh, we you. also appreciate you even getting up here to talk in front of everybody. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is a big deal. And I know we see her singing all the time. She's comfortable with that. But talking in front of people, this is a... I actually kind of threw it on her earlier tonight. She's like, wait, what? I'm going <laughs> to... Well, we appreciate you doing it. And we really appreciate how you've blessed us with your voice and ministered to us over the last, well, let's see, eight, seven, eight months. Um, so we appreciate that. And we're looking forward to when you come back, hearing about what God did through you during that time of study abroad. So let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just want to pray for Michelle, God, that you'd bless her. Lord, you'd keep her. Lord, she trusts in you the whole way, Lord. Uh, protect her mind. Lord, and Father, I just pray that she'd be mindful of the opportunities that you set before her, Lord. That, God, as you are teaching your servant here um, in her field of study, Lord, she'd be mindful of her gospel opportunities, witnessing opportunities, growing opportunities, just any opportunity you have set before her to grow in the knowledge of her Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we do pray you bless her. Keep her safe on her flight there and back. Bless her in country and out, and, and uh, we're excited to hear what you, what you do through her. Lord, we thank you for her, and we pr- ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you, Michelle, not Tiffany. <laughs> Can't believe I did that. All right. Um, if I could get the lights, um, I'm going to share the next testimony with you. I never was much of a talker. I came by it honest, neither was my daddy. Well, he, uh, 
He got his mouth shut one time by a big old angel. I reckon that tend to make a fella careful. I got old enough, I left. I went out in the desert so I could think about it all. You know, the, the, morning, the morning I left, my daddy, he, uh, he walked me down to the river. He handed me this note. He said these were some of the words he said over me when I was a baby when he got his voice back. He told me to chew on him. You, my boy, are going to go ahead of the Lord and get everybody ready for him. You're going to tell him that they can have their sins forgiven. Tell him that God's kindness is going to shine on them like the rising sun. I did it. I, I, I chewed on him these words for a long time. And then these words, they started chewing on me. I felt this, uh, this weight on me. So I, I went back to the river and, and I opened up my mouth and, and the words just started pouring out of them like a swarm of bees. I, I heard myself fussing at the religious people and, and telling everybody to get straight with God and get baptized. I tell you the truth, I wasn't even sure what I was saying, but I just kept talking, talking and, and baptizing all the time with that weight on me. And then one morning, I, I look up, and there's this fella. He's walking toward me, and, and I, I heard myself saying, real quiet, almost under my breath, there he is. That's the Lamb of God. He's going to take away all our sins. He walked right up to me. I saw then it was my cousin. It was Jesus. I hadn't seen him in years. He told me to baptize him. I did it. And we're standing next to each other in the river, and he's dripping wet. And I swear, I heard this voice like it's coming out the clouds saying, that's my boy. And I am pleased with him. Isn't that something? I could not take my eyes off of him. He was shining. He's shining, I'll tell you, like the, like the rising sun. And I felt that weight go off of me then. Because I knew I had done my job. I had, I had gone ahead of him. None of this was about me. Well, it never was. It was all about him. Well, still is. That was one of those awkward claps. So, uh, it is all about Jesus, right? And tonight we're in Mark chapter 6. And it is all about Jesus. And tonight we're going to be, as we move through the Bible here in Mark chapter 6, we're going to see um, unbelief. We're going to see uh, what success is measured as far as God's kingdom goes. And we're going to see uh, terrible guilt. So anyway, let's get into the passage tonight. Mark chapter 6 verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Verse 2, and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, 
Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. Verse 5, And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this night. We pray you bless your word as we hear it. Lord, we pray, God, that your word would change us. Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit to apply your word to us so that we can go out and be doers of the word, not merely listeners. We thank you, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we get into this passage tonight, we're dealing with a lot of Scripture, and I'm doing this a little bit different. We're going to deal with each one in a little expository unit. So we're not going to quite have all the illustrations of a normal expository sermon, but we have plenty of illustrations right here in the Scripture. And the first one starts with this little, little country town of Nazareth, the town where Jesus grew up. Now, Nazareth is a small town up in the hills, and I guess you'd kind of measure it to a little hick town sort of idea. In fact, earlier in the Scriptures, it's even asked the question in the Gospels, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So it's this very unassuming town, and it is approximately about 150 to 200 people who live in it. Very small town. I, I've, I've been to a couple small town places in my life, and I've always been amazed at how many people are actually in the town, because you drive through the town, and you feel like, who actually lives here? And then you'll see the town population, and it's like, wow, there's actually 2,000 people who live here. I have no idea where they live, but there's 2,000 people. So to think of a town that's only about 150 to 200 people, well, you can fit 200 people in this church, in this sanctuary. 200 people is enough for Everybody to really get to know everybody over time. And so we see that Jesus has just left Capernaum. He, he's left from healing, raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. And, and now he, he's going back to Nazareth with his disciples. Notice the text says, and his disciples followed him. We are entering into the stage of Jesus' ministry where training up and raising up his disciples is becoming of the utmost importance. And, he, and we're going to see in this chapter, Jesus sends out those disciples. But first, let's look at what happens in this town of Nazareth. He begins to teach on the Sabbath in the synagogue. And the first thing that they ask is, well, the first thing that we see from the text is they're astonished. They're astonished. They're astounded at his teaching. They're not saying, whoa, this guy's crazy. He's teaching crazy stuff. No, they're actually questioning, how is it that he knows so much about the Scriptures? How is it that he teaches with such authority? Where did he get these things? Where did the wisdom come from? How are such mighty works done by his hands? They'd, they had heard of these mighty works. They'd even seen probably some of the mighty works in Nazareth. But the, their, their response is this, is this not the carpenter? So they see Jesus, they hear Jesus, and then rather than responding with faith and saying, man, this is clearly of 
of God. They start to question where the power came from. Now, I think this is much like that sin that the Pharisees did earlier on, that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit where you're attributing the works of God to the works of Satan. The only difference is here in Nazareth, they didn't blame him of of being possessed by Satan. They're just starting to question, and they start to diminish him. This is the carpenter. This is the one who's not trained up. He hasn't gone to seminary. He hasn't gone through all the traditional rabbinic schools. He can't be the one preaching. He can't be the one that God's going to use. He's a carpenter. He makes, he makes yokes for our animals. He makes tables and chairs. Um, sorry, I just thought of the, Jesus, the Passion movie. Um, but he's a carpenter. This isn't an educated guy. Why is he up here? And i got to tell you, I, I don't make the mistake of thinking that the Holy Spirit only works through education. In fact, today, some of the greatest heretics ongoing right now in the church today are highly educated people, and yet they speak foolishness. Education is good, and it has its place, absolutely. But it doesn't make you the, ready to preach the gospel. It, it, education isn't the standard by which you go out and share the gospel. Not at all. In fact, we're going to see in just the, the next paragraph where Jesus sends out the twelve. These guys who are not educated, most of them. And uh, they're fishermen, and Jesus sends them out to share the gospel. So that's the first, diminish him. Notice the next thing they say, the son of Mary. Now listen, in Jesus' culture, in first century Palestine, you don't refer to somebody by their mom even once their dad is dead. You refer to them by son of Joseph. Essentially, what they're saying here in this text is, isn't this the bastard son of Joseph? The one of Mary? That's what they're saying about him. This certainly can be. So obviously there's some legend going on about the virgin birth still at this point. And I'm sure we all question that. You know, like with the virgin birth, don't, don't the people of Nazareth kind of question this? And they did. Here in the text, isn't this the son of Mary? And the brother, notice the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and his sisters with us. Now, if you were raised in the Catholic Church or you're, you, you have a, uh, ties with the Catholic Church, right here, this passage here is, makes a, a big question for you. Because there's four Marian doctrines. And those Marian doctrines, one of which is that Mary was a perpetual virgin. And, and she remained a virgin all of her life. But I want you to realize this is where the Scriptures say contradict the traditions of the Catholic Church. I'm going with the Scriptures. I, and I'll tell you right now, Mary was not a perpetual virgin from what the Scriptures say. The Scriptures clearly tell us that Mary, Jesus had half-brothers and sisters that were children of Mary and Joseph. And we know that this is James who writes the epistle of James, and Jude, who writes the epistle of Jude. In fact, it's interesting, though, when Jude writes his epistle, he says, Jude, the brother of James, Jude, a bondservant or slave of Jesus Christ, the brother of James. 
He refers to himself as the brother of James because there's no way he's going to refer to himself as an equal brother with his Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, this is the same family earlier on in the Gospels that thought Jesus was out of his mind. And they actually went to Capernaum to say, hey, okay, you need, you need to calm down. Uh, why don't you come, come out and eat with us? You know, they, and they tried to stop his preaching. And Jesus said, who are my mother? Who are my brothers? I tell you, whoever does the, the will of God, these are my, this is my family. That's what he said earlier in Mark. So here, the, the people of Nazareth are starting to diminish him, and they're, they're, they're making a huge mistake. They're considering Jesus on the same level as them. They're, they're, they're looking at Jesus not as a Savior, not as a prophet, not as, a, as a, a one sent by God, but just as an ordinary man. And they're willing to deny what God is doing through him. They're willing to deny the power that he has, the wisdom that he's giving, because they saw him grow up. They saw him grow up. It's how sad. And Jesus answers with this very, very short statement. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Sure, you guys can't see it. You're blinded by it because you know me. You're blinded by it. So it said he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Now, listen, it was not unbelief that hindered Jesus' power. Okay, It is unbelief that kept the people from being blessed by Jesus' power. That's what it was. The sovereign God can do what he wants. If the sovereign God can hold the sun in place while Joshua finishes his battle, if the sovereign God can tear down the walls of Jericho, if the sovereign God can speak into existence all creation out of nothing, then certainly a few people that don't believe in him can't hinder that power. So that's not what the text is saying. But rather it's because of their unbelief that they're not being blessed. And by the way, it's the very same thing today. When we choose not to put our trust in God, when we choose not to believe, we are the ones who miss out on the blessing. That's the way it goes. You know, I've, I've been asking in the past, I'll, I'll have um, an unmarried couple come to me and ask about doing a baby dedication. And, and I say, well, you need to get married first. Well, we, we want our kid to be blessed. Yes, I know you want them to be blessed, so get married. Well, we're not ready to get married. Well, if you want the baby to be blessed then do what the Lord tells you to do. There's no magical ceremony in a baby dedication. The baby dedication is about the parents and the church saying, Lord, we want to raise this child to honor you. We're dedicating this child before you, Lord, and we will do our best to teach them in the way in which they should go. That's the blessing. The blessing is in our belief. And by the way, let's talk about belief for a minute. Belief is not just magical hope. Belief is in substance. Belief starts in the mind. Belief is, is, is us deciding that we're going to trust in God and then acting upon that decision. That's what belief is. Jesus, we recognize you're from God. We recognize your teaching has authority. We recognize your wisdom. This is not from men. This is clearly from God. Jesus, we recognize your power. We see how you're healing people. This is from God. That is belief. 
It's based in substance. It's evidence of things sometimes not seen, right? They don't see how Jesus has this knowledge. When they try to rationalize it, they're like, wait, he's a carpenter. He, he grew up here. But wow, look at this. Look at the power coming out of him. That's what belief is. And he marvels at them. It, it, and of course, we know that Jesus is God incarnate, but I still think that there is a part of him that he just goes, how can you be so full of unbelief when you see the evidence? How is it that you can harden your hearts so much? And by the way, I also think him not doing miracles there is an act of God's grace on these people. Listen, when, when you are in unbelief, when you have decided in your heart not to believe in God or to reject His truths, and then God starts doing miracles in front of you, all you are doing is heaping more and more judgment upon yourself. That's all you're doing. Because when we, you get to heaven and you stand before the King of Kings, I shouldn't say you stand, when you kneel before the King of Kings and your mouth confesses that Jesus is Lord, and when they look up your name in the book of life and it's not there and you say, well, I chose to stand. I, I chose to represent myself on behalf of my own sins. And, you, and you're there before the judge of all the earth. Well, you saw the power of God. You heard the power of God. But you still rejected. All I know is I believe that that's a part of what eternal fire and hell will be like is us regretting that one very, very important decision. That one decision that's going to matter most about anything. The answer to the question of who is Jesus to you? Who is to me? The answer is my Savior. He's the salvation for my sins. My Lord, I'm ready to follow Him. I've put my belief in Him. And you know what? When I put my belief in Him, I receive the blessings. What are the blessings? Well, in this life, there's a lot of blessings coming. You know, some people live out their life in Christ and they, they continue to they say, okay, I'm going to come to church, but, but they still hold on to ongoing sin in their life. And, and I believe that they do believe in Jesus Christ, but they're, they're actually still being held captive and in bondage by their sin, and they're still missing out on the blessings of belief in God. The blessings, well... We, we see this not only in our relationships, we see it in our own mental health. You know, so, so many times today, people, they're talking about their depression or their, in, in, I, sometimes it's a chemical imbalance, but a lot of times it's a spiritual issue. It's a sin issue in us, our mental sicknesses. It's because we live an unsurrendered life. And when we put our belief and trust in Christ, we start to learn from Him. We take His yoke upon ourselves because it is easy. We take His burden upon ourselves because it is light. And we learn from the Master. And then we start to live in the blessings. Our marriages get better. Our relationships get better. We find ourselves able to give up sin that we've been holding on to that's been wrecking us. And we have that blessing of a clean conscience. That is amazing to know that we have a clean conscience before God. Well, after this, Jesus says uh, in verse, uh, we go on to the next passage, and he went about among the villages teaching. And verse 7, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them not to take 
to, uh, charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that uh, the people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So amidst the unbelief of these cities, now we have Jesus sending out the twelve. So we have the students learning to go out, be sent out. And by the way, the word to, that he sent them out uh, is apostoleo, which is... Uh, sent ones, and we get the word apostle from it. And, and that's what really essentially what the word apostle means is sent one. And of course, we have the apostles of the early church, which we, we don't just consider someone who's sent like a missionary. We, we recognize that that was a special calling for at the beginning of the church age. But we also recognize that in a sense, every missionary that goes out is a sent, sent one. Anytime someone goes out to preach the gospel, they're a sent one. And by the way, I think, you know, notice the disciples, they're not going to another culture. They're right within their culture. They're right within their towns in the midst of the Sea of Galilee there. And they're acting as missionaries. You and I have that same charge with the Great Commission. Go forth, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Trust me. Our nation needs to be reached. Our nation needs the gospel message more than ever. Something so interesting about the gospel message is it's never finished. The gospel message needs to be preached to every generation until our Lord Jesus Christ returns. But until that time, it won't be finished. So the younger generation in this room, don't get lazy with the gospel. Don't say, well, that was for my parents to reach or that was for my grandparents to establish churches. No, every generation needs to be reached. Every generation needs to become part of the church. It never ends. And so here we have Jesus sending out the 12. He sends them out two by two and he gave them authority. Notice that he gives to them this authority over the unclean spirits and he charges them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, a bread, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but wear sandals and put on and not put on two tunics. And so, I, I don't know about you, but I'm sure that they were scared. Just like when I go into street witnessing, I am scared. Wait a minute, aren't you a pastor? Yeah, I'm a pastor. But it's freaky walking up to a stranger and talking to them. In fact, I'm even scared when I talk to my family members who aren't saved about Christ. You know, I get nervous. I'm like, okay, uh, I wonder if I should interject here about this. I, and and the whole, I believe the Holy Spirit starts putting it on my heart. You should say something right now about this. And I'm like, oh, I don't know how to say it. Oh, they're going to think I'm a Jesus freak. And yeah, even pastors get, get nervous about sharing with people. You know why? We don't want to be rejected. We hate rejection. It's part of our human nature. We hate it. But you know what? I have a Lord who if I'm going to live out in faith and obedience to Him, unlike the people of Nazareth, if I'm going to believe in Him and He says, go out, i got to go out. Amidst my fears, I've got to trust in Him. And so Jesus sends them out and 
he charges them with this weird list. And by the way, there's a little bit of a scriptural um, se- seemingly contradiction between Matthew and Luke and Mark. And, and I think Matthew, Mark actually kind of answers the problem for us because in, in Matthew it says, don't wear any sandals and don't take a staff. And in Luke it says, uh, okay, you can have a staff, but don't take bread, bag, money, or belts, but wear sandals and don't put on two tunics. And, and I really think what it is is Jesus was saying, don't acquire things for this trip. I'm sending you out. Don't go acquire a second tunic. What was the tunic? What was their, their, their underwear? So they, they put on their, their underneath their outer garment, they had a tunic on. And if you're going on a trip, you'd wear two tunics because you didn't know where, uh, you know where you'd be sleeping or whatever the case is. You, what if you have a night out in the cold? You know, you have that second tunic to keep you warm. Uh, the, the idea of, uh, uh, obviously, Jesus wasn't sending them out barefoot throughout, throughout all of Judea. And uh, no, he, he was sending them out. So I think what, what Jesus here in Mark is saying is don't, don't acquire all the stuff for your short-term mission trip. Just go. Now, is this the model for all short-term mission trips? No, because later on, Jesus actually says, hey, last time I sent you out, I took care of you. Now, next time you go out, you're going to have to take a sword, take this, take that. And in fact, later on, we see that Paul, uh, on some of his missionary journeys, he prepares for the trip. But in this instance, Jesus is teaching his disciples and preparing them to go out and trust the Lord. It's a little test of faith. Just go. Okay, we're going to go. And so, and by the way, I think any time they confronted that first demon-possessed person, it was a step of faith. All right, Jesus said he gave us authority. So here we go. We're going to... In the name of our Lord Jesus, we rebuke you. Or come out of him. You know, however that went, we, the Gospels don't record it. But I guarantee it was a test of faith. So here, they're, they're heading out. And he gives them these instructions. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Now, by the way, later on, this got abused in, in, uh, in the early church. And in fact, a little booklet went out to all the churches called the Didac. And, and it was kind of little rules like so that the the fellow, home fellowships would know not to be taken advantage because eventually what happened was people caught on to this whole thing of Christians' hospitality. And so they would, they would just start living off each, each house and, and they wouldn't go get a job or whatever. So this little booklet or rules went out for people to be able to know who a false teacher was or someone who was taking advantage of them. And it said, listen, if they stay more than two nights and they haven't got a job yet, then you need to kick them out. You know, if they say by the Spirit, uh, make me dinner, you know, oh, Oh Lord, I'm feeling I'm feeling steak tonight. Yeah, amen. You know, <laughs> kick them out. So, because because in the early church, people started taking advantage of of the hospitality for for uh, their own gain. And so, uh, but in this instance, Jesus says, "Stay with those people." And by the way, this is right in line with the Jerusalem culture, the culture of the Israelites and the Jews, uh, and actually Middle Eastern culture. You, you show up at someone's house and say, hey, I'm coming to your house for dinner, and, and if they're a good host and a God-fearing person, they'll say, cool, come on over. And, and, and like, can you imagine today in our culture, I'm just coming over, hey, I'm coming over to your house for dinner tonight. See there. Six, wait, what? <laughs> what about an invitation? No, you can't come, you know. Our culture, this would never work. But in the in Middle Eastern culture, this is how it was. And so, so they were told to stay with them. Now, if any place didn't receive them, and they will not listen, and when you leave, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. 
whole idea is, hey, we've tried to bring the gospel message to you. Now, this message, by the way, that they're taking at this point is repent. That's what it is. It's repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. They don't know the other half. In fact, the disciples don't even know Jesus is God yet. They, they haven't, that's going to be revealed later on. They're still figuring out who Jesus is. So, so the message they're bringing is repent. The kingdom of God is near. Listen, the gospel message has a negative aspect to it. You've got to start with the negative to get to the positive. The positive is, hey, don't worry about the sin problem. Jesus took care of it. Jesus did it for us. But the negative aspect, the place where we start is, you're a sinner. What do you do about your sin? Sin leads to death. You know, it's, it's amazing because I've actually never met any person that thinks that they're not a sinner. Even the atheist. I've never met a single person that actually thinks that they've never done anything wrong. Or they don't have some sort of guilt over something they've done. Interesting how sin, no matter what your worldview is, you know you've done some sort of evil. And that's where the gospel messages start. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if you want salvation, it starts with repentance. It starts with turning from your sin, recognizing you're a sinner and you need a Savior because you can't do it on your own. By the way, I encourage you, ask people, what do you do when you sin? Ask them that question. Maybe they don't call it sin. What do you do when you do something wrong? Well, I try to make up for it. Well, does that make you feel better? No, not really. Not always. It's amazing how sin stains our conscience and it holds on. And so Jesus sends them out. Now, by the way, Jesus doesn't tell the disciples, hey, guess what? Everywhere you go, thousands of people are going to come. to. to they're going to believe your message. Everywhere you go, it's going to be revival because I'm sending you. You're going to be successful in every town you send. No, he says, hey, guess what? People are going to reject it. Same thing with you and I. Today, when we share the gospel message, when we take it out, people are going to reject it. But you know what? Even if they reject it, I want them to know about it. I want them to have an opportunity. Every opportunity for someone to hear the gospel is an opportunity for them to have life eternal. How, how shameful it is for a Christian not to share the gospel with somebody. We should always be sharing the gospel. You know, I, I heard Penn and, of Penn and Teller one time. Um, he's an atheist, a very, very avid atheist, um, sharing about how... He, he, he thinks it's sad when Christians, it, well, actually uh, what it was was a Christian tried to give him a Bible and tried to say, hey, can I share the gospel with you? And so he had this little video blog and he decided to share about it. And one of the things he said is, I respect the Christians who actually try to share the gospel with me because they're actually living out what they believe. They actually believe that I'm going to go to hell. They actually believe that I'm going to be judged for my sin. So they want to share the gospel with me. Interesting for an atheist to give that approach to it, or that perspective. So I challenge you to share the gospel knowing that you're not always going to be successful. There are people that are going to reject your message. You know, the, the mission work uh, to the Aka Indians in the 1950s by Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and uh, the other three pilots that went along with them, or three missionaries that went along with them from Missionary Aviation Fellowship. They sure weren't successful, were they? 
measuring by what we consider success. Success when we do a, a gospel message or an altar call or whatever the case is. Okay, do we got at least two people? Yes, sweet. We're successful. One person, yes, we're successful. 10,000 people, yes, it's worth going to the Harvest Crusade, whatever the case is. But Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, as they flew over the Achaeans and they landed that day, uh, they, they checked in. They said they called back by 4.30. Unfortunately, they were all murdered by the Aka Indian tribe. They were killed before they even opened up their mouths about the gospel. For weeks, they had been dropping presents and dropping life-size pictures of themselves to, to familiarize the Aka Indians with themselves. But as soon as they landed, they were all murdered. In fact, they found um, Nate Saint's watch that was cracked and stopped at 3.30. So right around 3.30, he was murdered. Not very successful as far as missions go. And you know what? Most missions start out that way. They don't seem very successful. But now today, the Akinians are, are reached. They're reached people. They're Christian people. The gospel has been received. And Nate Saint said this, People who do not know the Lord ask, Why in the world we waste our lives as missionaries? They forget that they too are expending their lives. And when the bubble has burst, they will have nothing of eternal significance to show for the years they have wasted. How interesting. <laughs> what a challenge to us is how are we spending our lives? How are we, or as Nate said, how are we expending our lives? Are we expending it towards eternal significance or towards eternal poverty? Nothing to show for it. And uh, we want to be challenged to go out, take the gospel. And so they do. So they went out and proclaimed to the people that should repent, verse 13, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Verse 14, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Now, King Herod heard of it. So what did he hear? He heard that one person saying, repent, the kingdom of God is near, is here has become 12 people going out saying repent, and King Herod hears about this. So some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. Verse 16, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John whom I beheaded has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths, 
And because his guests, he, uh, he did not want to break his word to her, and immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Wow. M- Mark gives us a little interlude about John the Baptist. The disciples are being sent out, and we're going to pick back up next week with the disciples' return. But in the meantime, we find out what happens to John the Baptist. This terrible story of King Herod beheading him. Now, the Herods are a mess, by the way. To to get to know the Herod family, it's all screwed up. So we have Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa is the the Herod of Jesus' birth. He's the one who killed all the babies. He's the one who built the temple, built Mossad, built all sorts of buildings and stuff. He's Herod the Great. Um, I'm sorry, I think I said Herod Agrippa. I meant Herod the Great. And Herod the Great had, uh, he married a Samaritan woman for a wife. Now, he wasn't even a Jew. He was an Edomian or or, um, an Edomite. He was from a different area. So understand, when the Jews had a ruler over them who wasn't even a Jew, it was a big deal. They, they were really upset about it. And actually, even when Herod the Great first came into power, he came into power because the Romans, the Romans said, okay, you can be king over this area. And when he came into power, he did things so offensive to the Jews. He built a palace with animal figures all over it. Uh, of course, that was uh, breaking the second commandment to them. And so King Herod had ten sons, of which some of them he killed because he felt threatened by them. But one of those sons was, and, and sorry, he had ten wives. And of those ten wives, he had lots of children, lots of little Herods running around, okay, uh, from his ten wives. We have here, we have King Herod. You know, Mark is actually kind of, in writing this, Mark is, in a sense, um, making fun of King Herod. In, in this text, because King Herod, uh, the Herod that we're talking about now, Herod Antipas, he is not a king. He did not take over his dad's kingdom. He was made a tetrarch. Okay, he got one fourth of the kingdom, and his other brother, Herod brothers, got the other parts of it. Or actually, Judea became part of under the the rule of uh, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and so he got one fourth of the kingdom. And actually, as that, because he was granted that, for him to tell, um, to tell uh, his half-daughter, I'll give you whatever you want, up to one half of the kingdom, he doesn't even have one half of the kingdom to give. It doesn't belong to him. This guy's a joke. And I think Mark is bringing that out in his text by calling him King Herod. I don't know for sure, but, but it seems that way because in all of the, the other Gospels, they don't, want, they don't want to refer to him as king, and Mark does this, and he's kind of showing that, you know, this, this is the title he always wanted, by the way. He kept asking Rome to give him the title. They wouldn't do it. Herodias, his wife, thought he could get the title, and she kept pushing from it. Finally, they got so fed up with this Herod, they, they exiled him and his wife away. That's, they kicked him out of the whole area, and they let his... Um, his son take it over. But this Herod, Herod Antipas, he met his brother Herod, Philip's wife in Rome, and he started flirting with her. And he's like, hey, my brother's into you, but guess what? I'm even more into you. And uh, <laughs> however, he decides he's going to go marry, he, he gets married to her, and John the Baptist is the one who 
calls him out on it and says, you can't marry your brother's wife. This isn't okay. It doesn't please God. And remember John's message, repent. That was John's message. Well, Herodias hated that message. She wanted him dead, but Herod was afraid to kill him because Herod knew that John the Baptist was a a servant of God. He he didn't want to do it. So now when he hears about Jesus, he says, uh, you know, he's like, whoa, this guy Jesus going around. First thing he thinks is it's Elijah. Next thing, uh, or or some people say he's Elijah. Others say he's a prophet. And so Herod thinks, no, no, I think it's John the Baptist raised from the dead. This, this has come to haunt me because of what I did to him. And it turns out on a, on a birthday party, Herod, Herod's half-daughter, this, this is how twisted this family is, Herod's half-daughter comes in dancing, doing this sexual dance, and he's so moved by it, gross, he's so moved by it that he's like, okay, I'll give you up to half my kingdom because you're such an awesome dancer. First of all, why is Herodias cool with this, the mom? Oh, that's right. She was, she was a debaucherous woman herself. This is a terrible family. And so the, the daughter's like, hey, mom, what should I ask for? I know the perfect present. John the Baptist's head on a platter. What? This is disgusting. So they go out. Herod grants her this because he realizes, oh, crud, I made a dumb oath. By the way, there's lots of warnings in the Bible about making dumb oaths. Because when you have to keep that oath, you're going to regret it. You're going to be really remorseful. Judas was filled with remorse. Herod's filled with remorse. In the book of Judges, we see lots of remorse happening. And the, the worst part about remorse is it doesn't bring about repentance. Remorse doesn't always, uh, remorse makes us feel guilty. It d- makes us depressed. But it is repentance that brings about he- life and joy and replaces the guilt. 